All right, so William Wilberforce, this time we mean it because the snow is not going to keep us away this time because it's 70 degrees outside. So he's born August 24th, 1759 in Hull, England, and he died November 13th, 1833. He lived a long time. Yep. And his background is his biography, right? His father died when he was about nine. His mother was ill and he was sent to live with his aunt and uncle. Um, now, England was nominally Christian at this point, which basically means in name only. And one of the chief indicators that we'll, we'll soon see why is because they had a flourishing slave trade. And so if you can say that you're a Christian nation and still have a flourishing slave trade, there's probably something wrong with that picture. Also, rationalism started to dilute theology, so most of the Church of England pulpits were not preaching God's word. They were preaching their own ideas and things like that. He was born very wealthy into a very wealthy family. Um, he was sent, uh, as I said, to live with his uncle and aunt, aunt, if you will. He was exposed to the horrors of evangelicalism. His aunt and uncle were Methodists, which was, if you were a high church Anglican, was just to be despised at that present time. His mother found out about this and quickly had him placed in another boarding school and a different boarding school to get him away from such an influence of the gospel. But what he experienced in that time was he actually experienced the love and the grace and probably some of the, the goodness of the gospel in that time. So that probably planted seeds in his head. He went to a different boarding school where he said he continued to do nothing at all. <laughs> uh, and a man named Mr. John Newton, who we might remember from two weeks ago, would visit this home. And Wilberforce began to think of him as, as a father-type figure. He was a, a rich kid that continued on in life. He continued to sponge off his parents' money and uh, their notoriety and their social status. He went to Cambridge University at 16 years old. He became friends with the son of William Pitt. And William Pitt was headed towards a great political career. He, he palled around with William Pitt and they used to take trips back to London and they used to sit in the gallery of Parliament and watch. And that's probably where he got his bug to be like, hmm, maybe I can do this someday and be in Parliament. It was also probably very fascinating because probably about that time was 1776. So anybody know what England might yeah. be discussing yeah, in yeah. 1776? It was a rowdy time. It was a rowdy time. So if you're watching from the stands in 1776, you're like, wow, this is exciting. Maybe I should uh, get into uh, Parliament. Um, on a whim, he did that. He ran for office when he was 21 years old. And because of his eloquence and because of his money and his name, and because of the fact that he probably literally bought his way in, he won. And his good friend Pitt, buddy from college, went on to become the prime minister of England at that time. So good old Billy Wilberforce uh, rode his coattails and was then uh, privileged to be in very special high power positions within Parliament. But it also meant that he was exposed to the lifestyle of the Parliament uh, lawmaker. He loved the political party life. He loved the late night parties. He loved the drinking and the excess and the materialism and the comfort and the wealth. He was single until he was 37 years old when he met his wife, Barbara, and they were married for 36 years until his death. 
And uh, after conversion, which we'll talk about at length, he led a long fight against the slave trade. <clears throat> and he was a man of incredible action and capacity. One of those guys who just had high capacity, could get a lot done. One of the things he liked to say is no man has a right to be idle. That he was just all about getting tons of stuff done. Very high productive, high capacity. Uh, and we'll see in a little while, he had a very strong work ethic in that as well. So some background on that, Mr. Wilberforce. Let's talk about his conversion. He invited a childhood friend, a schoolmate, Isaac Milner, who is supposedly a giant of a man, a very large physically man, and uh, Wilberforce was not. He was all of like 5'2", and when he was going through a lot of his illnesses, he got down to like under 100 pounds. So like think of this giant hulk of a man and then uh, Wilberforce. Um, Isaac Milner, he invited him to vacation with him in the French Riviera, which was apparently what the rich did. Eric Metaxas calls Milner the smartest man in England at that time. So he was a man of incredible notoriety, incredible intelligence. So he traveled in kind of the same circles, if you will. But to his horror, Wilberforce found out that, that Milner was a devout believer. And he was shocked by this. He couldn't figure out how a man of his stature and intelligence could be a Christian. They, they were very simply minded at that point. But he loved and respected this man and his intellect. And so he, he went at him. They engaged each other for hours about the Christian faith. He pressed in to know more about the faith. He found a book in the vacation home, which Milner had read previously called The Rise and Progress of Religion in the Soul. Think about that title. Right? So here's this man. He's trying to wrestle with what it means to be a Christian. He meets a man that he deeply respects and he's shocked to find that he's a Christian. He reads this book that says the rise of religion or the rise and progress of religion in the soul. And Wilberforce credits this book as having significant spiritual impact on him. By February of 1745, he reports that he had reached intellectual assent to the biblical view of man, of God, and of Christ. Not quite there to saving faith yet, but he's kind of like this could work intellectually. One biographer wrote that Wilberforce began to wrestle with the implications of what it might mean to embrace the Christian life. So he's, he's talking it out, he's thinking it out, he gets to the point where this might actually be something that is true. And he begins to wrestle with these implications of, okay, so what if it is true? What does that mean? In the summer, he traveled with Milner again. They talked for hours about the Greek New Testament. I mean, who wouldn't talk for hours about that? And he slowly said his intellectual assent became profound conviction. And one immediate fruit of his great change was he was also profoundly, profoundly convicted for the lifestyle that he led. The wealth in which he had, the comfort in which he traveled, all of the excess, all of the materialism, he felt that his old life was incompatible with his new life. And that was a very, very stark contrast to him. But he was also, as he was a uh, new Christian, he was fascinated with what he called the peculiar doctrines of Christianity. And peculiar doesn't mean strange in this case. It means unique. It means what are, he was fascinated with the unique 
doctrines of the Christian faith. And he would call some of them like human depravity, uh, divine judgment, substitutionary atonement, Angel. Uh, all those things that he would say are cornerstones of the Christian faith. He would think on these key doctrines and he would be like, these things, I, I'm fascinated by them. I'm fascinated by substitutionary atonement. I'm fascinated by, you know, uh, the doctrine of justification by faith, for example. He called them peculiar doctrines. Piper said also he was not a political pragmatist. He was a radically God-centered Christian who was a politician. And that's going to be very important when we look at his view of life and his work ethic. Most people thought at that time that the poor people, there was this great divide, of course, between the rich and the poor. The poor people were there because they were of lower intelligence. The poor people were there because they made bad life choices. And too bad. That's just your lot in life. I can't really help you. Um, Wilberforce started to see that differently because of his Christian faith. Sin was not bad because of the effects that it had on society. Sin was bad because it was an offense against a holy God. So he started to see these things in a different light. He started to transform his worldview that it just, maybe there's something else at work here. He was also fascinated with the supremacy of God's glory in all things, which he called the grand governing maxim in all of life. So some observations, some applications. What do you think about the evangelistic technique of his friend Isaac Milner? What do you think of his conversion, coming to faith, wrestling with this in an intellectual way? Is that in contrast to any of our current evangelistic kind of models that pop to mind when we think about evangelism? What do we think about when we think about evangelism? Evangelistic church. Reading Bible tracts. Reading Bible tracts, okay. I don't know how they did evangelism back at that point in time, but I mean, it, it was certainly the right, the right means for, for Wilberforce. It was, yeah. It's, yeah. It's, it definitely worked for him. Yeah, I mean, what things do we see in that? We see a relationship, right? We see the exchange of ideas. We see somebody who's not afraid of pressing into the hard questions of Christianity and his friend Milner, right? We see an intellectual kind of uh, fortitude, if you will, right, to the faith that sometimes we don't see in our evangelism, right? Sometimes it can be more of a monologue where it's like here are the four spiritual laws and, you know, you need to accept Jesus into your heart and pray the prayer and there you go. I don't think Milner was going on the four spiritual laws <laughs> and praying the prayer. I think he was probably much deeper than that. And I, Big time commitment. Huge time commitment. Yeah. <laughs> Such a sacrifice. Oh, the Lord is calling me into the French Riviera where I'll minister to my friend. Oh, Lord, if you insist, I'll do it. I get it. But, but, but the lifestyle, you know, he found out right away. Just, he probably wanted to go out on, on the town. Yeah. And you know, Isaac didn't want to go out, yeah. you know? So imagine that. You invite your buddy on vacation because you, think he's, party gonna, with you think he's gonna be like, you know. <laughs> he's not gonna party with you. But Texas said when it was like when they were far enough away, probably like five hundred miles. Remember, they're doing this by horse and everything else. Then he finally let it slip that he's a Christian. Like they couldn't turn back. Like they were already like five hundred miles into this journey. And he's like, wait a minute. So I'm gonna party by myself? What the heck? <laughs> 
but just Milner's witness, you know, and his faithfulness and living a life that is uh, consistent with what he said, right? What do you think about the difference between intellectual assent and true conversion? Does one require the other? Can we have one without the other? Definitely Discuss. Yes. Yeah. We can't have we can't have intellectual assent and not true conversion. Right? We can agree. Well, oh. Even like even the demons know that Jesus is the Son of God. Like yep. but they're not they don't have they're not converted. Right. Yeah. They mm -hmm. have knowledge. Yeah, they do, right? They probably know about the whole word of God maybe a little bit better than some of us, yeah. right? Satan probably knows a lot of the word of God. <laughs> he doesn't believe a word of it. At least a better image of what the Trinity is, yep. like how that works. He tried it with Jesus in the wilderness. It didn't quite work very well, but he, he doesn't believe a word of it. So yeah, you can certainly have an intellectual assent. And I think that's a, a evangelistic challenge sometimes when we're talking to people. We kind of get the head nod like, no, no, no. Yeah, I'm, I'm good. I believe in Jesus. Like, I, you know, I believe he died on the cross for my sins. And, you know, but is that just... Are you intellectually agreeing with the possibility, like historically, that Jesus existed and maybe he died on the cross? But what, what's the difference then between intellectual assent then and true conversion? Because there was a line for Wilberforce. What's that Bible verse that says these people worship me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me? Mm. That's it. If your heart's not aligning where your head is, yeah, your head can right doesn't mean that your heart's not. Yeah. And that, and that's a great point. And then what should flow out of our heart then? Listen. Yeah. The fruit of our life, right? Which we saw immediately in Wilberforce. Because his the scales kind of fell off his eyes and he's kind of like, oh mackerel. <laughs> I'm a rich guy. Like I live in comfort and luxury. And everybody else, you know, we have kids working in the factories for 20 hours a day and poor people and we have a slave trade and we have all this stuff. This is a profound conviction. That came in after that. So, yeah, it should it should be one that travels to our heart, and then fruit should come out of that. That we should look at our lives with different eyes. Be like, wow, things things need to change, right? If you prayed the prayer and then live like nothing, you know, everything's the same. Are you really saved, right? If there's no fruit, are you really saved? Right? The gospel should transform everything in our lives. And that's one thing we'll see with Wilberforce. Is he just, his whole worldview just turned upside down. It doesn't mean it's going to happen that moment. Nope. So, yeah, it's progress. Riviera. Yeah. It took, it, I mean, it, What'd you say? <laughs> it took all summer on the Riviera. I need a little bit longer. <laughs> Wrestling through deep things here in Key West. <laughs> Do I need to make <laughs> <laughs> um, maybe another implication or observation we could say is, are we fascinated with these peculiar or unique doctrines of Christianity? Like when we think about the core doctrines, like justification by faith, like, is that enough? Like, does that fascinate us? The fact that God is sovereign over all things, do we, do we, does that does that interest us? Does it, does it stir our hearts to praise? And the fact that God is holy, all of these things that are top level, first level issues in Christianity. 
Like that's what fascinated Wilberforce. That should fascinate us too, right? Sometimes we blow right by those things and we want to get to other things, but they're the most important things many of the times. So any other, how, what's that? Sorry, it's amazing how in the past they used to uh, debate these doctrines. Yeah. I mean, they used to, have, used to have meetings about yeah. specific doctrines. Yep. I mean, yeah, the all these Westminster Assembly and Westminster Confession of Faith probably was uh, probably a hundred years before that, maybe right, sixteen hundreds or something. Yeah. Hello there. You can sit next to your hubby. He left you a seat. <laughs> Any other thoughts, applications, implications on the conversion story of Mr. Wilberforce? I think it's fascinating that he studied the law. One of the guys, I can't say it was Newton, but I'm not sure if it was Newton, was also drawn to the idea of his faith by understanding the laws of science. Mm -hmm. There was another one that studied law and philosophy. A lot of times when you study, when you study the laws and the order that God created, it ends up drawing you to really have a respect for the truth when you see it. It's yeah. Complete defense of Yeah, definitely. Yep. The idea of coming to God kind of for who he is, too. Yeah. And he was surprised some of those things really fascinated him. Because as a as a person who'd studied law, to see God's idea of divine justice and forgiveness. Yeah. And the idea of the price being paid yep. through an actual identity of a human. Yeah. Was kind of... Yeah, definitely. All right. Let us look at another key theme in his life. He had his view of materialism and life, again, was kind of completely flipped upside down after he was converted. Um, he went from enjoying materialism to a view of stewardship. What's stewardship? Talk about that. Taking care of something. Yeah, you're taking care of something. It's not necessarily yours, right? But you are a manager. You are a steward of it, right? And so as Christians, he saw that right away. Like, all this is not mine for my enjoyment only. All this is God's for God's glory, and I have to manage it. He said, uh, by careful management, I should be able to give at least one quarter of my income to the poor. So immediately started to think, I have way too much money. <laughs> Everybody else believe that? I, I thought that the other day. I have way too much money. False. I did not think that the other day. Right? But if I did... True confession time. Hey, Ken. True confession time. I would probably think, what can I buy? You know, instead of, I should probably give it away. Right? You see the trans and transformation that happened here. So he went from materialism to stewardship. He began to question his life calling and his purpose. And we hit on this when we were talking about uh, John Newton. But one author wrote his quandary has been described as the Eusebian temptation, the belief that one could best serve God in a sacred rather than a secular activity. So Wilberforce immediately contemplated leaving politics to pursue holy orders or some other sort of form of ministry, right? So he gets converted, his worldview flips upside down, and he says, I gotta get out of politics. Maybe I should become a pastor. Maybe I should become something else, a missionary somewhere. Maybe I should do something that God would really be happy with, right? So he reached out to his old buddy, John Newton. We'll read the actual letter that he wrote 
to Mr. John Newton. And he says this, um, December 7th, 1785. He was at risk because Newton was an evangelical, which is not, not an Anglican. He was not admired. He was not esteemed by any of Wilberforce's colleagues in Parliament. He wrote this, I wish to have some serious conversation with you. I have had 10,000 doubts within myself, whether or not I should discover myself to you. But every argument against it has its foundation in pride. So he's so in tune with himself. I am sure you will hold yourself bound to let no living person know of this application or of my visit until I release you from the application. So he's like, don't tell anybody I'm doing this. P.S. <laughs> remember, it must be secret and that the gallery of the house is now so universally attended that the face of any member of parliament is pretty well known. So he's like, he's getting, literally like Nicodemus and Jesus, like he's booking over there into the cover of darkness, like trying to meet, you know, Newton. Uh, Piper says it was a historically significant visit. Not only did Newton give encouragement to Wilberforce's faith, but he also urged him not to cut himself off from public life. Wilberforce wrote about the visit. After walking about the square once or twice before I could persuade myself, I called up old Newton, was much affected in conversing with him, something very pleasing and unaffected in him. He told me he always had hopes and confidence that God would bring something, or bring some time, some of this English, would sometime bring me to him. When I came away, I found my calm in a tranquil state, more humble and more looking devoutly up to God. And so basically what happened in that conversation is that he went to Newton and said, I think I should get out of politics. And Newton says, I don't think so. I think you should stay in politics because you're in parliament. And I think you should think bigger that what could you do to glorify God in parliament instead of just leaving because you think you need something holier to do. So he resolved to then stay in politics. So most guys, most historians would credit Newton with saying, nope, you need to stay right where you are and you need to have an impact with God right where you are. Um, he had a tremendous work ethic while he was in um, parliament, tireless perseverance. Even though he suffered greatly with physical illness, he had very poor eyesight and catch this. He had very poor eyesight due to morphine poisoning because he had ulcerative colitis. So not only does he have a stomach full of ulcers, and that day the treatment was, here, just take this morphine. And if you're on morphine for long enough, it jacks up your eyes like crazy. He had a curved spine, so he couldn't really sit or stand and, you know, without pain. Um, but he was another fellow, you know, very typical of that time, just belabored with sickness and physical calamities as well. But he also helped to change an utterly godless culture. He was probably the first Christian in Parliament at that time. And by the time he left, they estimate that at least 100 people in Parliament had professed faith uh, because he was there. He was also someone of deep joy. He had a, a child life, childlike, self-forgetting joy in Jesus Christ. He was cheerful. He was, the sunshine. he was a man who was sunshine of spirit. He loved his family and he was very present with them. His family life was very important to them. Um, in that time, a father was not really around much at home. 
and they certainly really weren't uh, involved with kids, right? In that sense, they were kind of like, whatever, do your thing. But this guy, Wilberforce, was like, gets home from work, gets on the floor, and plays Legos with the kids, and talks to them, and, and leads family devotions and things. So he was very, very present with them. This quote is good. His presence was fatal to dullness. <laughs> he was just one of those people that was so uh, joyful and so sunny that anybody who was dull or boring didn't stand a chance. He was, <laughs> he was going to suck him in. And he said, a cold, unfeeling heart is represented as highly criminal. And we were talking about that this morning at Bible study. The idea of a, of a joyless Christian is an oxymoron. Right? We should be joyful of, of all people, right? He was a very compelling Christian. And he fought for it because he had many uh, dark nights of the soul. I have a, look, a note to read a little bit. Maybe it was his diary. He did write an autobiography. <coughs> That doesn't mean he didn't have dark times. Um, he says, here's one entry. Lord, thou knowest that no strength, wisdom, or contrivance of human power can signify or relieve me. It is in thy power alone to deliver me. I fly to thee for support. O Lord, let it come speedily. Give me full proof of thy almighty power. I am in great troubles, insurmountable by me, but to thee, slight and inconsiderable. Look upon me, Lord, with compassion and mercy. Restore to me rest, quietness, comfort in the world or in another by removing me hence <laughs> to a state of peace and happiness. <laughs> He's saying, hey, God, bring me comfort, quiet, and rest, or kill me and let me go to heaven <laughs> where I'll have it eternally. I don't think I've ever prayed that. <laughs> but he, he knew his own sin. He says, Three or four times I've most grievously broke my resolutions since I last took up my pen. Alas, I think there's one or two more alasses, how miserable a wretch I am, right? So this is the guy that everybody knows as the happy-go-lucky, totally joyful, sunshine of spirit, compelling, you know, guy. But when he's in his home and in his prayer closet, these are the prayers that he's wrestling with. The dark night of the soul in that. So he fought for it. He fought for his joy. And so some implications, observations, applications, stewardship. What does stewardship mean to us in 2021, 22 America? Is that March? You think I'll get that right? What's that? Whatever it is. Yeah. Okay. I am a steward of a property. Yep. That includes your time, your money, yep. everything in your life. Absolutely. Yeah, that whole encompassing worldview like Wilberforce had, right? So do we think like that? Do we think like everything I own belongs to God and should be enlisted for his service and his glory to a certain extent, right? We're not saying we sell all our possessions and walk around in burlap, but is, is by and large, are we thinking like this stuff's his or this stuff's mine, right? That idea of stewardship. Yeah, that was a great reminder. What about our theology of work? Our secular careers. Are there, is there a sacred and secular divide? Are we working as unto the Lord in whatever we're doing? We are. So then, is there a sacred and secular divide? No, there is not. 
yeah, there's really not. That was one of the great things that came out of the Reformation, right? Thomas Jefferson didn't know that. <laughs> Thomas Jefferson? <laughs> yes. He's the one who wrote the great wall of separate, that there's a wall of separation oh. between church and state. Oh, okay. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. However, yes. he was referring to not establishing a state religion, but that gotcha. was taken out of context by our judiciary. But that's yeah. Conversation. Right. right. Yeah. It's not separation from religion. Right. <laughs> it's not establishing a state religion. Yeah, so if God owns everything, and God is sovereign over everything, and we're stewards of God's, then there is no sacred secular divide. My job in delivering the mail is just as godly and just as important as being a pastor, right, or a missionary. My job is the <coughs> same thing. My job, you know, so there are no unimportant careers. There are no insignificant jobs, insignificant tasks. The Lord Jesus uses them all. Um, and Mel quoted Colossians 3, um, slaves, which is ironic, what we're going to be talking about in a minute. And slaves here means bond servants, right? So the modern equivalent of us working for someone, like we're contractually bound to show up to work every day. Obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, but not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. There's our theology of work. Whatever we do, we work at it with all of our heart. You know, One pastor said something like, you know, employers should be calling the church when they're looking for people. Like, Send me more Christians. They're the best employees I have. They're always on time. They always do a great job. They're always honest. Right? Think about it that way. That's how... Um, that's how Wilberforce thought about it. And think about where we're placed as our jobs. God has sovereignly put you in whatever life situation. Again, stealing from this morning, we talked about running the race. Whatever course God has set us on, whatever, whatever studies in school, whatever season we're in, wherever in retirement, whatever career we have, that is where our ministry is. So work is ministry. We've got to work to unseparate the sacred and the secular. I have a question. Yeah. How would you be able to uh, like discover a way to <coughs> use your job or whatever it is you're doing to glorify him? Like yeah. how would you start and find it how to, to relate those two? Yeah, it's a great question. I think first of all in the Colossians 3, right? Like we said, uh, like Paul said there, um, in the way we do it. Mm -hmm. I think that's the first and foremost thing. The idea of we're doing this for the glory of God. Right. Right. That we're, we're looking past our kind of current boss and looking to please the Lord okay. by what we're doing. Right. And so we do it in a manner that is excellent. We do it in a manner in a way that is good and kind <clears throat> and compassionate and all those things that then people are attracted to not only uh, the quality of our work, but how we are while we're doing it. Mm -hmm. That doesn't take very much these days, right? Because not many people are joyful at work. Not many people enjoy their work. Not many people are really good at their work, maybe you could even say, right? You put all those things together, that's a super powerful witness, right? You see, like, Angelo's like, man, he's happy. He's, like, good at his job. He gets along with everybody. Like, he's always here. He's always humble, always helping out somebody else, always doing that. 
And then when you put the final peg in the, in the slot, it's like, yeah, he's a Christian. It's like, oh, that's what a Christian looks like. Flip it on the other side, right? Okay. If you're the guy that's always late, if you're the guy that nobody gets along with, if you're the guy that always wants to fight with the boss, who does a terrible job all the time, and now you have a platform for the gospel? No. So representation yeah. is just as important as uh, declarative. Absolutely. What's that? Your actions. Yeah. Yeah, your actions. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes we think like, oh, if I'm the Christian in the office, then or whatever, I'm the guy that has to share the gospel. I'm the guy that whatever. It's like, well, okay, well, it doesn't do any good to share the gospel if nobody likes you <laughs> in the office. You have no platform for the gospel. You know, you're like saying one thing that I'm doing all things for the glory of God and my life exists for the glory of God. But then you must not think very highly of that because your work stinks. Like, you know, and nobody likes you. And, you know, so not that we're working for people's approval, but you know what I mean. In that sense, like, are, are you a valuable member of the team? So does that help? Yeah. When you think about it? Yeah. Yeah, because I think then you will see, like, you know, obviously we're called to be Christians everywhere we are, everywhere we go. And so we bring those Christian values to everything we do. Mm -hmm. People should see that. And then they'll see Christ through us, right? And you'll get those questions. Like, why, why are you the way you are? <laughs> why do you always care? Why do you always help people? Why are you always happy? Mm -hmm. You know, and there it is on a silver platter, your opportunity, right? And it doesn't mean you're not going to have bad days. Or, or oh no, no! But it's then having that biblical mindset with that, and having the humility to sit, you know, to ask for forgiveness or apologize, or being like, "Yeah, what I did there, you know, wasn't." I spoke harshly to you because I was irritated, and that didn't represent yeah. Jesus well. And I, and as a Christian, I meant, you know, yeah, I need to represent Jesus yeah. better than I did ten yeah. years ago. Hypocrisy, hypocrisy will kill the witness very quickly, right? So we need to be legitimate at it as well. Call it sin when it's sin. Good point. And then uh, another one, maybe we can think about his joy, right? Do we have this deep joy? And he obviously went through valleys too. But how do we cultivate that joy? Any thoughts on that? How do we cultivate that kind of steady joy? I think worship is an important part of that. Okay. Because it's it's an outward expression. It's it's with the, the body of believers. Yep. And it's just it's it's like exercising that muscle. Yeah, definitely. And, and remembering how worthy God is of worship. Thinking about that, yeah. I think uh, fellowship encourages joy. Okay. Fellowship encourages joy. Definitely. Being with other believers, being encouraged, being like mindedness, like mindedness, uh, like mindedness, being spurred on. Yeah, an encouragement. Yeah, uh, with, with that fellowship. Yep. It's a big, big key. Big, yeah. big key to the kingdom. Definitely. Definitely. Any other ideas? We're gonna get to some of that in a little while, so I'm kind of stealing from a future slide. So we'll talk more about that in a minute. Let's talk about one of the big things that you will know him for, which is his his uh, his tirade, his work efforts against the slave trade. He said famously, God Almighty has set before me two great objects, the suppression of the slave trade and the reformation of manners, which essentially means culture, 
Like, okay. <laughs> Big dreams there, Wilberforce. And he did a lot of it. Like, he's like, two things. The slave trade, and I'm going to reform as much culture as I possibly can. So he had some big, big dreams uh, for him. His fight lasted 46 years and was defeated 11 times in Parliament. Opposition to him was fierce, and the slave trade itself was outlawed in 1807, but that unfortunately didn't do much for the people who were already slaves. Right? That took uh, until 1833 to get it in effect and, and, and implemented. Now, one of the reasons why it took so long to get implemented was, think about it, their entire economy yeah. was dependent on the slave trade. So you think about this guy saying, oh, slavery is morally wrong. Like, <laughs> cool, cool story, bro. We're not going to do anything about that because our whole economy is dependent on slaves. So think about how, how huge that was. What a countercultural thing, right? It was... Finally passed three years before he died in 1833. And 30 years later, then, the slave trade was abolished in the United States. And again, uh, slave trade was abolished, but then slavery itself took a couple more decades uh, to get rid of. But again, the whole world was set up, set up to benefit from the slave trade. And this man had enough courage and moral fortitude and forethought and huge thinking to say, no, the glory of God calls us to more. This is still wrong. I was looking at some of the pictures today of some of the, the uh, ships where they were just, they had literally had diagrams of how they used to store the slaves. You know, four to five to 600 slaves on each, I mean, stacked in there. And then you're just like, these are human beings. It's, 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 it's mind blowing, right? Think about how counterculture it is. Think about how countercultural abolishing abortion is. Right? And you think like, wow, it's so firmly embedded in our legal system. It's so firmly embedded in people's thoughts and brains. These are the kind of things that Wilberforce was thinking about. His life was threatened on more than one occasion, of course. He lost many friends in this whole thing. Think about it again. Mr. Uh, party guy in Parliament, probably one of the most popular dudes in Parliament, right? He becomes a Christian, and then he comes back, and he's like, I think we should abolish the slave trade. It's like, what? Talk about losing friends. Talk about going, uh, you know, the other way. There's a good section of the book on this whole thing I'll read for us. It says, of course, the opposition that raged for 20 years was because of the financial benefits of slavery to the traders and to the British economy, because of what the plantations in the West Indies produced. They could not conceive of any way to produce without slave labor. This meant that Wilberforce's life was threatened more than once. He was criticized the credibility of a, when he criticized the credibility of a slave ship captain, Robert Norris, the man was enraged and Wilberforce feared for his life. Short of physical harm, there was the painful loss of friends. Some would no longer fight with him and they were estranged. Then there was the huge political pressure to back down because of the international political ramifications, right? So <laughs> this is not England. It's the whole world, right? <clears throat> For example, if Britain really outlawed slavery, the West Indian colonial assemblies threatened to declare independence from Britain and federate with the United States. <laughs> These kinds of financial and political arguments held Parliament captive for decades. Think about 
the idea that concentration to continue this fight while you're talking about that for decades in Parliament, right? But the night, or should I say the early morning of victory, came in 1807. The moral vision and the political momentum for ab abolition had finally become irresistible. At one point, the House rose almost to a man and turned towards Wilberforce in a burst of parliamentary cheers. Suddenly above the roar of hear, hear, and quite out of order, three hurrahs echoed and echoed while he sat, head bowed, tears streaming down his face. At 4 a.m., February 24th, 1807, the House divided. A's, which means yeses, 283, noes, 16, the majority for the abolition at 267. And on March 25th, 1807, the royal assent was declared. One of Wilberforce's friends wrote, Wilberforce attributes it to the immediate interposition of providence. In that early morning hour, Wilberforce turned to his best friend and colleague, Henry Thornton, and said, well, Henry, what shall we abolish next? <laughs> it only took 45 years, right? And of course, the battle wasn't over. Wilberforce fought on until his death 26 years later in 1833. Not only was the implementation of the abolition law controversial and difficult, but all, all it did was abolish the slave trade, not slavery itself. That became the next cause. And he goes on to describe um, how that happened as well in a very, very similar fashion. So we think about those the, the hugeness of this, right? So here's a man gets converted, right? His immediate first thought is, man, I should just leave Parliament. Newton says, no, you need to stay in Parliament. And now we see why. And we see a lot of what, what, what God had for him in there. And so some implications for us, right? Sometimes we think some of these uh, human rights issues or other world issues are kind of beyond us, right? But Wilberforce didn't. We also have to be very careful that we fight these injustices on biblical grounds, not on cultural grounds, not on political grounds, right? We have to make sure we're, we're in it for the long haul as well. Right. When we're talking about issues, we need to be informed. One of the weirdest things that I learned, too, is that the British people didn't have slavery in their face like the American people did. Like Americans saw slaves go out work on the plantations and they did their thing. British people didn't know that. I mean, they were the, the government was the facilitators of the slave trades, but we just saw in the book that every, all the work was happening in the West Indies in those plantations. All the British people saw was the products coming back that they sold. So it's kind of invisible to them in a lot of ways. So, but do we know what are behind a lot of these issues? Like, are we doing the research in our brains and, and thinking about this, right? He also wasn't a single issue politician. He was against all oppression. He was abuse against the abuse of children in the factories. He was uh, looking to care for the poor all of those things. So he wasn't just focused primarily on the slave trade to the detriment of everything else. Uh, Eric Metaxas, who wrote a really good book on him, said that the, just the moral climate of England at this time was ridiculous. He said 25% of all the women in London were prostitutes. 25%. And the average age was 16 so that shocks you, but then what does that say about all the men in London, right? That they could employ 
of what a completely godless culture at that time. And that's this environment that Wilberforce waded into, right? And so we think about it, you know, what causes is God putting on our hearts, right? Some of them we think, eh, I don't know. It seems like a big thing. I don't know what I can do with that. But I would encourage you to investigate that with an open Bible and see if the Lord is calling you to some of these things as well. Keeping in mind the balance, right? We can't ride off and save every single person, right? We can't get involved in every single cause, right? We have to be careful about what the Lord calls us to, some of these things. Does slavery still exist in 2022? In the world? Yes. 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 In what ways do you think slavery still exists in the world? Human trafficking is a big one. Yeah. Human trafficking is a huge Sexual trafficking is a huge one. And the workforce. Yep. Labor. Yep. Yeah. <clears throat> There's also um, religious, um, where like Muslims will capture non-Muslims and enslave them as well. Okay. Yep. So religiously motivated. Yep. Religiously yep. motivated. Yep. Okay. I know certain cultures um, will still sell children to mm -hmm. work to get the family out of debt. Uh, yeah. So in that sense, child slavery is. Yeah. Yeah. So you're right. In all of those cases, right? I mean, slavery still does exist. It doesn't look maybe necessarily like we remember from Civil War or something like that, but it certainly does exist, right? Wilberforce had the quote that said, let it not be said that I was silent when they needed me. I mean, he just had that passion, that, that idea. So what about the idea? I think we talked about this with John Newton, but the idea that Christianity and the Bible promotes slavery. What do we say to somebody who says that? Because, well, hey, Christian's talking about that. Like, you're the ones who, Bible, your Bible's okay with slavery. How do we respond to that? Is that the truth? Does the Bible condone slavery? We just read a passage in Colossians that said, uh, slaves obey in everything. We did talk about this. I remember. <laughs> <laughs> what, can we, what can we say back to that? It's a very popular thing. It is a very popular response. Let's define our terms. There you go. Let's define our terms. Yep. We can certainly fall back on the image of God immediately, saying, no, that is not a biblical concept, right? Our, the image of our God is stamped on the soul of every human being, and therefore every human being from the time they're in the womb until the time that they're 100 years old and they pass away, they have value and dignity and worth in the eyes of the Creator. So... No one has a right to enslave someone else or own someone else. Right? That's just an that's just an imago day thing, right? Um, but in First Timothy as well, Paul comes down on it and says, uh, in his in his vice list, he says that uh, the law is good. We use it lawfully, understanding this that these are part of the lawless and disobedient, the ungodly and the sinners. And he goes on to list sexually immoral. Men who practice homosexuality, which is another good verse to have in your back pocket, right? Enslavers, he says. Liars, perjurers, whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. So the people that, the slave trade itself, like this very thing the Bible condemns. Taking another human being against their will and enslaving them is what the Bible is condemning, right? Where is it, 1 Corinthians? This is uh, 1 Timothy 1.10. 1 Timothy 1.10. 
So we've got to know that the Bible does not, absolutely not condone slavery. It comments on slavery, and it, it's, it's, not, it's not saying it's okay with it, right? Well, there was slavery in time. There was throughout all, every... Yeah, there was the beginning of time. Yep. <clears throat> There's always been slavery. So why wouldn't God speak into that? Like, there's always been slavery. There's always been sexual immorality. There's always been violence against people. There's always been murder, right? God speaks into those things. So he speaks Didn't, into um, the apostles say that we, uh, the people that lived with them, though, that were slaves, to treat them in a, a, a different way. Oh, sure. Yeah, it, it said, although they work for you or yeah. whatever, uh, we're supposed to treat them Right. Uh, uh, in a different manner. It was one of the ways that uh, Israel was supposed to stand out, right, in the way that they lived and worshiped God. And one of that was in the way that they lived, their civil laws on how the slaves were treated. Sure. That, that they should be a part of your family. Yep. And again, slavery was much different from that point, right? Um, first and foremost, you know, we again think slavery, we're Americans, we think civil war. It wasn't racial, right? It wasn't a racial thing at all in slavery at that time, and even in Greco-Roman times in the first century, it wasn't. It wasn't racial, and it certainly wasn't. Um, a lot of times, it was. We said it was voluntary too, like you're paying off a debt or something like that. So different things, different than chattel slavery. That's what we're talking about here in England. That's what we're talking about in the United States in the South. Chattel slavery means you own someone like a piece of property. And you could do to them whatever you wanted to do to them. And you could, you could kill them and you'd not have to face any ramifications. Right? Completely against the Bible. Completely against it. So. so isn't there like a um, passage somewhere in the Bible, it could be the Old Testament, where they mention like, okay, if a slave, slave has served their time, yep. but then chooses that they want to stay with the family and continue, yeah. that they have the choice. And you just think, yeah. why would any slave in Is that the one where you put the hole in his ear with the awl yeah, and... Yes. Put him by the doorpost and put a hole in his ear. Right. Yeah. And but you just think it's like, no, if you were a slave, again, in our understanding of slavery, it's like, no, you wouldn't. Why on earth would you ever stay? You know. Exactly. So this idea that you were, in some sense, maybe treated, like a member of the family, like their best. Treated differently. Right. It's like their number one man, you know, and you you love the family that much. You want to have this go on for the rest of your life. Like that's yeah. so opposite of what we think. No, right. this this is our definition of slavery yeah. and what it is today. Yeah. And we've got. I think Noel said it, right? We've got to define terms right away, right? Which is huge, huge in any apologetic discussion. First and foremost, define terms. What are you talking about? Now, how did you come to that opinion that uh, the Bible condones slavery? Talk about those things. All right, one more thing. Um, let's look at his doctrine and his discipline. He knew the core doctrines, again, those peculiar doctrines. He knew them cold and spiritual disciplines were how he walked in those core doctrines. He said the link between life and doctrine was prayer. That's what he said, right? So he knew the doctrines, and he knew how to walk in those doctrines, and he said the link between those two things was prayer. So prayer was part of a huge part of his fight for joy. We talked about that before. How did he maintain his joy? He maintained his joy in two ways. He knew the doctrines cold, right? He knew justification by faith. He knew God's sovereignty, God's supremacy, all that stuff. But he linked it together with actual practical application. And one of those ways was prayer. It was part of his fight for joy. In his book, A Practical View of Christianity, 
rooted in the great doctrines of the Bible about sin and Christ and faith. It leads to spiritual affections. It's a big Jonathan Edwards term for like joy. Like we should actually care about these things. We should have emotions about these. Is that me that keeps dinging? No, it's me, it's Ron Tichner. Oh, okay. He's, he's getting more no. wrong. His, his, his sister, sister is, did she pass away? No, no, Oh, okay. I'm sorry. No, it's okay. We'll pray for that when we when we close up. We'll pray for our brother. A couple of quotes. He said, let him who would then abound and grow in this Christian principle, right, be much more conversant with the great doctrines of the gospel. Right? He says, you want spiritual affections? You want joy? He says, get to know the doctrines. Which is like, for us, that's like, um, that doesn't sound very joy-inducing to me. You want me to study justification to get joyful. And that's what he said. Yes. He says, from neglect of these peculiar doctrines arise the main practical error of the bulk of most professed Christians. He says, if you ignore the doctrines, that's the main practical error of the bulk of professed Christians. He said, it's a fatal habit to think that Christian morals are distinct from Christian doctrines, right? Sometimes we think, oh, I'm a Christian, this is what I have to do, right? That's my, my morality, right? This is what I have to do, but then it says, no, these are the things we have to know. Another shameless plug for men's Bible study this morning, we talked about the indicative informing the imperative. Like that's what the Bible says all the time. You need to know who you are before you know what to do. Right? The Bible doesn't always start off with just saying, do this. Right? The Bible starts off by saying, this is who you are because of Jesus Christ. And because of that, then you do this. That's what you look like. Hugely important biblical principle. And he knew that. He says, you gotta, you got to know the doctrines and know why you know the doctrines, and then you walk in those. Right? Who you are informs what you do. Okay? Um, he, he uh, anchored on uh, central, centrally the justification by faith was one of his greatest joys and the triumphs that triumphed over all other obstacles, he said. And so, so just some questions as we land the plane. Why do we shy away from doctrine? I mean, I don't. <laughs> but why? <coughs> why do you think we shy away from doctrine? Think it's hard? Okay. Yeah, no, that's a good answer. To help you when you help us interpret scripture. Yep. You know, you need someone to interpret doctrine. Yep. Yep. That's a good one. Yeah, sometimes they're just flat out hard to understand. You're not sure how that connects to real life. Right? It could be dry. Yep. yep. Say there's there is a lot of doctrine, and unless we have like things memorized we're going to be there like oh it's in here somewhere you know and yeah. it's hard to memorize all the things like oh if i want to prove this it's this and even if you do memorize be like look see the bible says anybody can be like oh that's fake that's just a book yeah you know so people in the outside world that we try to witness to yeah they can always just go back to that book doesn't matter yeah true unless we show why the doctrine of justification by faith really really matters in our lives but that's why yeah. it's easy to go on like, oh, because it's right or wrong or find something that's more relative and that, okay, yeah. anybody out there can be like, well, I guess that's kind of right and wrong. 
you know, like it's easier to apply to that because you don't have to memorize anything. You can just do apply it. Well, it should be your sense of common decency, you know. It's like it's sure. easier to we'll borrow from the Christian worldview to call it something, yes. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. What attracted what attracted Tony and I uh, to this church um, is how doctrine is taken and given real life application mm. and and how it affects our lives right now where we are right and, and that's a big key yeah and that gets communicated good I'm glad we, we try to we really really try to this is I'll give you one cool resource if you really want to learn more about this I haven't read this whole book so I can't vouch for everything in here but I've read a couple of them this is by uh, Mr. Paul David Tripp who is a very uh, very good writer and a very accessible writer, but his new book is called Do You Believe? And it says 12 Historic Doctrines to Change Your Everyday Life. And he goes through, he basically goes through uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith. And I'm sure some of you will be very excited by that. It's heavy duty stuff. Right? <laughs> but he goes through the doctrine of scripture. He goes through, and then each doctrine he goes through, he has a section. So for example, it's the doctrine of scripture, and then he says, scripture in everyday life. He was the doctrine of God. So God in everyday life, right? The doctrine of this. This is, there are resources out there, to your point, Wendy, where you think like, okay, like I'm not going to read the Westminster Confession of Faith, right? Only sickos do that. Like, <laughs> right? And if you do, it might not be the most profitable thing for you to do, right? Right? But something like this will help you like connect the dots. And be like, okay, well, this is this is what this means in my life, right? And that's so. Yeah, he's very he's very good. He writes at a level that's very helpful. Yeah, yeah that's what I was going to say. Some of the writers that write about doctrine use some very big words and write at very yes. high levels, yes. in very complex ways <laughs> yes. that can confuse people and yes. make it really difficult. You can always talk to a guy like me. I'd be helpful. I'd be very happy to help you. Uh, get get started in a, in a direction about doctrine and what to read and what not to read and that sort of thing. But you're right. Yeah. Uh, I, do, any, I was going to say, I do think we live in a time where we have so much accessibility. Yeah. Like crazy accessibility. Information overload. Yeah. And I feel like it's different now that it should be a little bit easier for us as Christians to be like, yeah, like you can go on the internet, you can go read a book. Yep. Um, to kind of almost amp up like why you believe what you believe kind of what you said because yeah. I feel like a lot of Christians like oh I have faith but that sometimes isn't enough yeah so when you're pulling out doctrine you're pulling out like that discipline of yourself like you're kind of showing you're dedicated to this if that makes yep. sense you have a lot of wish-washy Christians mm -hmm. that are just like oh yeah I believe but yep. they're not showing it in their everyday life so it's just like if you're like William and you're like super dedicated you're showing this throughout your whole life you're going to find like ways to kind of like yeah get that information and, and, you're, and you're study speaking it. speaking of the, this tenacity that yeah. we should have as believers. Mm -hmm. Like, no, like I'm going to read the Bible because I know there's something mm -hmm. in here for me. And I'm not, it's kind of like Jacob when he wrestled with the Lord. Like, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. Like, there's something in here for me. Mm -hmm. I know there is. Right? I believe it's in Hebrews 6. The author really condemns people who don't move past like the calls it elementary teaching. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. You know, um, like, and he even says, like, before yep. that, you need someone to teach you, mm -hmm. you know. Um, yeah. And I, I think 
that's why like he just spoke in parables because he was willing to see who would actually be there to learn and figure out what he was saying. Yeah. True. Because you have to, like you said, tenacity, you have to challenge yourself a lot. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think some people do just end up getting like burnt out mm -hmm. uh, reading it and like comparing like translations or sure. whatever is they're, they're doing. You yeah. know, I've seen that happen. But guys, too, one of the, like, like this attitude that uh, pre-salvation Wilberforce had towards his buddy when he found out he's a Christian, that's a real thing. And one of the biggest detriments that we have as believers, especially evangelicals, is people think that we're stupid, right? And I hate to say it, but sometimes they're right, you know, because we've not done the hard work of understanding why we believe, right? We just throw it out there like, oh, I believe that. Like, well, why? What does that mean? Right. And so they push questions and they realize that we're not really that deep in what we believe. Right. It's it's to our shame. It really is. And so that's why I love this conversion story of how, no, he pushed on it as hard as he could intellectually. And he found out it was true. Right. We should do the same thing, you know, because the Bible is true. And we should be we should be aware of that. I was going to say to her point, it reminds me so much of this moment where I was sitting with the principal and we were having a teacher conference with a kid that refused to do their math homework. And uh, I remember we asked him, well, what are you doing instead of homework? And he said, I'm just watching movies all day. Mm. And we said, well, you know, is it important to you that you want to be able to learn how to think better and to reason better? He said, nah. He said, I like feeding my attitude more. Oh. And I just, the more I thought about it, I honest thought, answer. I thought, that's, that's probably an honest answer for a lot of the reasons why I don't do it. It's because we need to be fed. Yeah. We prefer to feed our attitude more. Yeah. Mm. Very true. But we would do well to engage um, with these things as well. The other thing I was going for, and we'll wrap up too, but is that some people sometimes have an allergic reaction to doctrine. It's like, oh, no, 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 not doctrine. Doctrine's going to divide people. What's that? It, I think it scares people as, as being le very legalistic. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yep. And even even just reading about it or thinking about it, you go, am I becoming legalistic? Yeah. Yeah. There is, what he talks about here is the same thing that Edwards talked about, right? There needs to be both. There needs to be, yeah, sure, Christianity should give us spiritual affections, but it's not just all emotion, right? A lot of the evangelical church now is just, all emotion, right? And not so much on the doctrine, right? The answer is never in the extremes. It's never just all empty emotion, and it's never just emotionless doctrine, right? It's both. And is there need... a tension that things are held in? There's a tension. <laughs> it's another tension. We need both. Word need and both. spirit. Yep, exactly. Word and spirit. Amen. So, very important. And so don't be afraid of doctrine, is the moral of the story. Push in. And he saw it in practical life, and that's one of the ways that he was sustained. Sustained in his fight, sustained in his work ethic, sustained through his illnesses, all of that stuff. So, well, good. Let me pray for us. And I'll release you back to your Wednesdays. And Rob. What's that? And Rob. <coughs> and Rob. Yes. Father, we do thank you that uh, we can gather together. We thank you for the saints that have gone before us. And, of, of course, as we think of men, just of, of colossal cultural impact. Uh, like William Wilberforce and just what he did um, to abolish slavery in England and the, the, the ripple effect that that had literally around the world. And of course, we see it in our own country. Um, Lord, we pray that we would be those that press into these things and think deeply on these things and have powerful convictions based on scripture about these things. Help us 
to see where you are gifting us and where you are giving us passions uh, to, to get involved in some of these things. But give us caution, give us balance, Lord, of course. Uh, may we tend our own soul first and foremost, as Wilberforce reminded us to do. Um, help us to be steadfast in the spiritual disciplines, uh, in our pursuit of doctrine, but also in our pursuit of the spiritual affections. And would you cultivate those within us, Lord, as we seek to be joyful in those that follow you. Lord, we think of our brother Ron and pray for him as he's with his sister. We pray that you would give him comfort. We pray that his presence would be peace. We pray for the spirit to be in this situation, that those around them would be able to sense presence of Jesus. We pray for the assurance of salvation. We thank you so much for um, that hope that we have in Jesus that goes beyond this life. So uphold our brother Ron and his sister uh, at this time. We commend them to you. We thank you for, again, this time to think on these things. Use them to glorify yourself and edify us. We pray it through Christ our Lord. Amen.